Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This is our news roundup episode for the week and in which we discuss several of the big news items uh, from the past week. Uh, and this week that will actually include one item that was from late last week right after I recorded last week's episode. Um, but I also want to mention that we had a question of the week episode this week too in which I interviewed uh, Mark Bergen who is the Alphabet and Google reporter at Bloomberg was previously in that role at Recode and is one of the best reporters out there, in my opinion, on the subject of Alphabet and Google. So he and I had a roughly 30-35 minute conversation earlier in the week about Alphabet and Google, which is up already on a podcast and uh, which you can go listen to. And I highly recommend that. It's a good compliment to the interview I did a couple of weeks before with Mary Jo Foley who covers Microsoft at ZDNet, uh, both of them really kind of experts on those respective companies. So both of them had very interesting things to say. But this is our News Roundup episode, and we've got sort of four topics we're going to talk about today. First off is um, the Roku IPO filing. Again, that happened on Friday afternoon last week, just as I was getting ready to wind down for the week and uh, ended up you know, causing me to spend another several hours digging through the S1 and, and figuring out all about their finances and their business model and various things. So we'll talk about that and also about the fact that they launched uh, their own channel this week, uh, a movie channel uh, for the Roku uh, platform. Secondly, we'll talk about a range of streaming uh, subscription slash uh, service bundles and things like that. So T-Mobile announced that they'll provide free Netflix to family plan subscribers Spotify is throwing in free Hulu to its $5 a month student subscription here in the US. And then Disney elaborated a bit more on its plans for a Disney branded streaming service that's coming in late 2019. And then third, we will talk about Amazon's HQ2 search. And this is the announcement by Amazon that it's looking for a second North American headquarters. And then lastly, we'll talk briefly about the Equifax hack, not technically a story about a tech company but certainly has a tech angle and that's what we'll be talking about so that's the roundup for what we'll be discussing today um, we'll kick things off with the roku ipo so uh, widely expected that roku would ipo at some point it's been in the midst of this sort of business model transition for the last uh, year or two in which it's moved from selling streaming boxes to selling a platform um, but the most interesting thing that emerged from the ipo filing was to what extent its business model going forward is is really not about selling devices and certainly not about making profit on devices, but really is about that platform. Uh, and yet it's not about uh, charging lots of money to license that platform to TV manufacturers. It turns out it actually charges very little to do that. Its main business model going forward is about advertising and uh, to an extent about taking a cut from subscriptions that are sold through that platform that it provides. So that was really interesting set of kind of insights that came out of the Roku IPO filing. And then this week they announced uh, the Roku channel, which is a movie channel that's going to be, again, ad-supported, reinforcing this sense that advertising is going to be a big part of their business model going forward. So, Aaron, what was your take on all of that? Um, <clears throat> so I, I think there's an analogy between these um, streaming devices and the companies that sell them and cable companies more generally in that they are sort of a pipe to content, right? It's the way you get content to your television set and it used to be you plug in a cable box and now you plug in a streaming box but the box is still the sort of the, the the vehicle or the pipe that this all goes through and it's hard to make business when you're a pipe and so you've got to figure out other ways to do it i think what's 
interesting for Roku here is that they have a little more control over what people see on the screen than traditional cable companies have had. Um, it, with the exception of the cable companies, are they own a bunch of the networks that they're that they're delivering content through, and so they're selling ads there and so forth. But it, it seems like it's it's kind of the only model, right? It, the, in fact, the outlier here is obviously Apple, in yeah. the sense that they're sort of building an ecosystem and you know people buying apple tvs are also buying ipads and iphones plus apple tvs are are a lot more expensive than the competition um in those cases the hardware matters but generally speaking these boxes are not that far different from cable companies cable boxes and it's hard it's hard to be in business when you're just a pipe so you got to do creative stuff like this yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, it's fascinating. As you say, you know, if you think about the four big players in the kind of streaming box market in the US, you've got Roku, you've got Amazon, you've got Google with Chromecast, and you've got Apple. And of three of the four now basically have a business model that's about something other than selling the box. So right. with Google, it's about, you know, advertising and the play services and everything else. Um, and, you know, frankly, the Chromecast is a very basic device. It's really about your smartphone and connecting it to your TV. Um, Amazon, it's about sort of e-commerce and about Prime and everything connected with that. Roku is now increasingly about advertising and revenue share from subscriptions. Apple's really the only one trying to make money on the hardware itself, as well as, as you say, reinforcing its ecosystem. And that puts Apple at a big disadvantage. I mean, Roku says very explicitly in its IPO filing, um, we don't aim to make lots of money off selling our boxes. And in fact, we optimize for making our uh, installed base of active users as big as possible. So their goal isn't about making money from boxes, it's about having as many users as possible because that's it monetizes those users. And it's now making, I think, in the past four quarters, $11 uh, a year from those users through that sort of platform, basically, through advertising and revenue share and so on. And that's about the same as uh, uh, Twitter, I think. Um, so it's, you know, it's on a global basis at least. So. You know, it's, it's already a fairly decent revenue stream for them. They've got 15 million active users on their platform between their streaming boxes and TVs that are licensing the platform and a handful of uh, cable set-top boxes and things uh, that are using those platforms as well. So really interesting kind of strategy from them. And then, you know, this movie channel that they're launching that's kind of reinforcing that same business model. Um, to my mind, the interesting thing here is emphasizing advertising in the streaming TV world feels like it's swimming upstream a little bit because... Yeah. Um, you know, we've got this huge trend ag- away from advertising. So first of all, away from linear TV, which in the US especially is heavily dominated by ad-based business models. So move from that to online streaming, which has tended to have fewer ads to begin with. And then you've got Netflix, you've got HBO, you've got now Hulu, um, you've got a whole variety of services. You know, CBS All Access offers an ad-free option. Many ad-free options out there and increasing clarity that people are willing to pay a premium to avoid seeing ads uh, in these circumstances. So as I say, it feels a little bit like Roku is swimming upstream here. They basically say, hey, we're replicating the traditional TV model. That's worked very well. All those ad dollars have got to go somewhere. We want to capture some of those. But it also has huge implications in terms of the data that they collect. And I think they talked in the IPO filing about collecting 18 terabytes of uncompressed data every day from their users in terms of what their users are watching and how much of it and so on. And you know, it's this classic tension that exists in an ad-based business between wanting to boast about all the data you collect about your users to potential advertisers who want 
to target advertising in a very specific way versus serving your users who may not know, may not like the fact that you're collecting all that data about them, certainly wouldn't have bought the box with the understanding that you were going to do all this tracking and so on of them. And so there is that kind of inherent tension there as well. So to my mind, at least, although this is driving some growth and profitability uh, or better shrinking losses, should we put it that way, perhaps, for Roku, there are some significant sort of risks around all this as well. Yeah, and, and I agree with all that. And I would add on top of that, the additional risk of the fact that people are moving away from TVs as screens for watching all this stuff. You know, it's just as easy to sit in your bed and watch on your iPad now. And the fact that that's the case and that, that more and more consumers are getting comfortable with that means Roku is competing for a shrinking market in terms of ad space where you see the ad on the television screen. And so you know they don't have a meaningful they don't they don't have any way to compete is if you're watching on your tablet and uh, or on your laptop or on your phone and uh, and and that trend is just going to accelerate where more and more people are willing to watch video content away from their living room yeah no absolutely I, I I do wonder I mean I do feel like TV went through a detour for a while where viewing went away from the TV not because those were the preferred devices but because those were the only devices where people yeah. could have the flexibility that they wanted because there was no way to watch you know Hulu or Netflix or whatever on your TV originally and Roku of course sprung out of that opportunity as originally an in-house effort uh, for a Netflix streaming box and you know spun out and has been much more successful that way probably than they would have been um, but you know we, we're kind of coming back to now all these boxes that do plug into your TV that do allow you to watch these uh, different services and so on on the biggest best screen in your house um, and so I, I agree that there's definitely an increasing share of video viewing that's going through smartphones and tablets and so on but the, you know the TV is still a big thing I think I, I think this idea that you know, the smartphone is the TV now, ignores where the vast majority of viewing still happens in people's homes, which is on big screens um, and increasingly on these streaming boxes as well. All right, well, let's move on to our second topic, which is in some ways closely related because we're still talking about streaming and subscriptions and so on. But this is really about partnerships between companies and, and those that are newly emerging, those that may be falling apart to some extent as well. And so three main sort of hooks for this discussion this week. First off, T-Mobile announced its latest uncarrier move, and this was by far its simplest, certainly the shortest announcement. I think it took about 30 seconds uh, to actually announce it, and it's basically that T-Mobile is giving away free basic Netflix subscription to family plan customers, and there's some sort of asterisks on that which we can talk about. Um, secondly, Hulu is now being bundled into the Spotify subscription that's available for college students in the US. That costs $5 for Spotify currently and will include basically $8 worth of Hulu as well going forward, but still cost $5 uh, in contrast to sort of $10 normal uh, individual price for Spotify. And then lastly, Disney's Bob Iger spoke at an investor conference this week and gave some more details about the Disney-branded streaming service that the company's going to be launching. Um, it's also launching an ESPN-branded service uh, next year in the spring, uh, the Disney branded service will now be uh, late 2019. Originally, they just said 2019 sometime. Could have been a year and a half away. It's now going to be two plus years away. Uh, but a whole set of announcements here, a couple of partnerships, as I say, uh, and then the Disney 
uh, Netflix relationship, which is uh, happening at the moment where a lot of movies and other content from Disney goes onto Netflix, that's going to basically end for movies in particular in 2019, and not just for animated movies, but it's now clear that that's for Lucasfilm, in other words, Star Wars, and uh, the Marvel uh, movies as well. So uh, that partnership kind of coming apart at the seams, even as those other partnerships start to emerge. Aaron, kind of what were your thoughts about all of this? Sure. So um, the T-Mobile thing, I, I guess I was I, I, when it when it was announced, it's sort of like, oh, finally that happened. It just seems like that somebody doing that was inevitable. Who knows how long it will actually last? Because um, I, I think, like you wrote about this on Tech Narratives, I don't think it's Netflix paying for this, and it'll be interesting to see if there's a financial gravity that makes this promotional more than permanent. <clears throat> in terms of a benefit, we'll see how long that goes. Because, I, I, well, I mean, I don't think it's going to drive any new Netflix adoptions. And so it'll mostly be just a function of people who are already subscribing to Netflix deciding to themselves, well, this is essentially for me a $9 a month discount or whatever it is now. You know, is that worth it switching over to T-Mobile? And I don't know, that's a... That that's a I don't know how many people are willing to do it, switch to T-Mobile based on that sort of math alone. Um, on the Hulu thing with the Spotify thing, I, I think what this really is is Spotify trying to get out of Apple um, because I think Apple Music is going to become something much bigger and broader in the relatively near future. Apple's efforts and original content are very clear. Its intentions are clear now that they've had so many executive hires for creating original content, setting aside a billion dollars for this effort. I think, you know, Spotify, I think, just very wisely recognized that if video and it isn't part of what they do, in addition to streaming music, that in the long term they'll lose this fight with Apple. Spotify has really benefited from Apple Music. There's no doubt about that. Apple Music has broadened the market, and a lot of people who weren't doing streaming at all tried out Apple Music when it started and then ended up choosing Spotify. I know a lot of people personally who have done that. Um, you know, right now they're sort of competing on a relatively even playing field. I mean, you know, Apple has this edge because it's baked into devices. Spotify has a lot of things that Apple Music isn't good at, like sharing playlists. The social side of Spotify is much, much stronger. Um, but where Apple could really just kind of wipe out Spotify is adding original video content to the Apple Music subscription. And, uh, and, and Spotify, I think, recognized this and in a very savvy way worked out the Hulu deal. Granted, it's a pretty narrow test because it's just for college students. And, and this is all loss-leading kind of marketing anyway um, because the subscription monthly fee is so cheap. Um, but uh, it does give them a chance to to sort of test out that kind of a relationship to hedge against the future that is almost certainly coming. And I really do think it's going to be a bundled thing with Apple where Apple Music is now Apple content or whatever, and it comes with all that stuff together. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's that bundle point is the key one. I think this is about aggregation, and, and we're living in a world in which we're going from single monolithic big bundles of stuff to lots of individual sort of streaming subscriptions that we pay for separately in many cases. And that's going to become 
sort of unsustainable over time when yeah. you have 15 different subscriptions that you pay for, you know, each of which might be $10 a month or whatever. There's going to be this massive opportunity for aggregating and bundling and bringing all that back together into a single package where you pay a one bill, you can manage it easily, you can kind of check boxes to turn elements of it on and off and so on. And so we're going to start seeing that aggregation happening. We're seeing it at an app store level with Apple. We're seeing it with Amazon subscribe with Amazon service where you can bundle a bunch of other subscriptions into your prime subscription. Um, you know, and we're seeing it now with some of these partnerships happening and T-Mobile bundling in Netflix, um, partly a response, frankly, to AT&T bundling HBO, I think. Um, but also, as you say, Spotify and Hulu coming together, you know, those are two standalone subscriptions, both of which are presumably already very popular with college students. So bundling them together sort of increases the stickiness uh, for both services, potentially hooks people on those services so that when college students graduate, um, they go from paying $5 a month for both to paying you know, 10 for one and eight for the other, you know, so kind of create long-term relationships that you can monetize later on. Um, very interesting to see Hulu and Spotify come together because, of course, both these companies lose quite a lot of money at the moment. Yeah. And so, you know, as you say, another loss leader for them, but clearly an investment in the future in many ways as well. I also wondered to what extent giving away free Hulu uh, will encourage individual users to establish their own identities with Hulu rather than sharing somebody else's Hulu account, which I suspect a lot of that goes on. Uh, in colleges as it does with HBO and lots of other streaming services. Um, it, let's talk about the Disney-Netflix thing for a while. I mean, yeah. the original Disney announcement was announced with earnings when they announced that they were acquiring majority control of BamTech, uh, which is the streaming platform that they'd acquired roughly a third of well, a while back. Um, they announced two streaming services, an ESPN one launching next year, a Disney-branded one launching in 2019. Uh, the additional detail that came this week was as I say, the specific timing on the Disney branded service now late 2019, so two plus years away, um, that it will include the Marvel and Lucasfilm properties, that it will also include some exclusive movies, probably mostly live action, some exclusive series and so on. Uh, on the ESPN side, uh, reiterating this is largely about content that isn't currently on the ESPN channels. So this isn't about replicating what you get as an authenticated pay TV subscriber at the moment. This is about 10,000 additional sporting events that are not currently broadcast by either ESPN or ABC. Um, and potential for sort of a la carte pricing there. So you kind of pick individual events or you could pick a, a conference within um, you know, college football, for example, that you wanted to get games from or whatever. Um, so some additional details involve emerging around all of that. No pricing yet, uh, which is obviously an absolutely critical component of all of this. Um, but this basically signifies, for the most part, the end of the relationship with Netflix around the movies, at the very least. It's possible there'll still be some ongoing relationship around creating original series based on Marvel uh, intellectual property, but we'll kind of see. I doubt that somehow, but we'll see how that goes, especially now that Netflix has acquired um, a comic book company of its own uh, to create new IP around. But uh, anyway, Aaron, your take on, on that side of things? Yeah, I'll first say it doesn't surprise me that Disney is uh, is considering this. They've always been pretty willing to experiment and try new things when it comes to digital delivery. They were one of the first movie studios to sell movies in iTunes, for example. And so this goes, this is kind of built into their DNA going way back. Uh, well, way back. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> in technology terms, that's way back. Right. <laughs> but... Uh, but I, but I think what's interesting from Disney's perspective, what's interesting with Disney doing all this now is they are a massive content producer, multiple studios under their, you know, uh, under their umbrella. 
I think what will be really fascinating is how expansive the selections is when you subscribe to this Disney service. I mean, if, if they've got entire studio catalogs available at your fingertips, which is sort of one of the problems now without the way the streaming services all work, you can't, you know, there's some movies that still aren't available for streaming, like, you know, older movies from the 80s or 90s that uh, that you might want to watch but that are sort of held on to because studios think they make more money by just making the people who love those movies pay a rental fee instead or buy them digitally. Um, I think I think it would be really fascinating if Disney just essentially says, hey, we've got entire catalogs here that are always available. Watch whatever you want in our catalog whenever you want for this much a month. That is going to be... That, that, that is going to be a force to be reckoned with. And, and obviously a lot of the, um, the channels that offer streaming services would have a, a harder time uh, justifying their existence. I mean, you know, when you think about like Showtime, Cinemax, Stars, um, obviously they produce original content that, uh, that is drawing in viewers. But part of the appeal is you get also access to maybe some newer movies or some of the more famous or popular classic movies. And that sort of creates the whole bundle that might make you subscribe to those services. I'm separating HBO because their original content is a whole level above everybody else's in terms of cultural impact and everything. But um, but they are going to have a hard time, I think, depending on what Disney does here. And and the truth is, this you know everything I've said doesn't even include the the ESPN stuff and the ABC stuff and anything else that Disney might throw in. But as a, as a powerhouse content producer, I think it makes a lot of sense for Disney to do this. The devil will be in the details in terms of pricing, like you said, and, and, uh, and, and then also the amount of and quality of the content that they offer. Um, but I could picture a lot of people paying 9 or $10 to essentially get access to everything Disney and all of its you know, sub-branded studios, everything that they've produced. I, I would do it. Yeah. I, yeah, I, at ten dollars, I think I would too. But I, I worry it's going to be fifty bucks, you know. And that's right. the problem I think with Disney right now. And we've seen this throughout the sort of legacy TV industry that as streaming has taken off, there's been this sort of desire to participate in that, and yet there's been this huge reluctance to cannibalize the existing business, even though it's going to happen kind of inevitably over the next few years anyway. Um, but they, these companies are in all, extremely protective of their IP. They're extremely protective of their current business models, which are heavily dependent on pay TV providers uh, and you know movie theaters in the case of the companies that make movies. And so what we've tended to see is, is two separate sets of strategies, one of which has been successful and one of which hasn't. The successful strategy is take everything you do, put it online and make it super easy to subscribe to, have the whole back catalog there and charge basically the same as people would pay through a pay TV subscriber and let them watch whenever, whatever, on whichever device they want. That's been successful. That's the HBO Now model. That's the um, CBS All Access model. Um, you know, Showtime and Stars and so on have done similar stuff. You know, that's the model that works. And then we've seen models like CISO from NBC, which was kind of packaging together a bunch of their comedy stuff, a lot of which was already available on YouTube and other places. Yeah, and that just didn't work, and they killed that off recently. And we've seen other things like that too. And my worry is Disney's very much going after that other strategy, which is where how can we make more money overall from doing an additional digital thing rather than offering our existing package of stuff in a digital realm. And so we'll see what it ends up being, and maybe over the next two years Disney will learn enough to really go after this the way they should and be successful with it. But my worry is they'll either charge way too much 
they will not put the content people really want in there. Certainly that's the strategy they seem to be pursuing with the ESPN service. Uh, and as a result, neither of these services will end up being all that compelling, either for price or content reasons. And they won't actually help them. And meanwhile, they have another two years of erosion of the traditional business model by uh, the actual successful streaming services and so on that are out there. Yeah, when it comes to movies specifically, and I don't know that this is necessarily true for TV, but I think it is. I, I think the future is going to be essentially what's happened to music. Digital music sales have 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 dropped off, and the reason they've dropped off is because streaming makes way more sense. Having an, having you know this massive catalog of music at your fingertips is worth, you know, the, is is worth the ten dollars a month or whatever people are paying, and. Uh, and and I think that makes sense for all other content. I, you know, I there granted there are people out there who are spending twenty to forty dollars a month buying new movies, for example, as they sort of roll out of the studios and finally get into digital delivery. Um, there are people out there, um, you know, paying extra to subscribe for Showtime, for Cinemax, for Stars, and these other um, these other you know. Uh, movie bundling packages which is essentially what they are if you leave aside mm -hmm. the original content um I, I i think if you think if you look at the number of people who would pay ten dollars a month to to those would all be lost business if you start a subscription model right because all those people right. that are spending more now all of a sudden are just paying the ten dollars a month i'm just throwing that number out there right you have some losses there but you pick up who knows how many other people Right. Who, who just think, man, this is awesome. If I could have, you know, I think Touchstone is a Disney studio brand. Right. Um, I am trying to think of all this uh, uh, new line. Um, you know, if, if you have access to all of these sub branded studios for Disney, plus obviously the, 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 the marquee stuff like Lucasfilm and the Marvel video, or the Marvel movies and mm. and Pixar like that, you're going to you're going to bring in 10 times the number of people that are sort of scaling back their expenses because those are the, you know, the people that are actually paying for those movies or for those extra movie services. I don't yeah, know. I, th no. I think there's room there for the math to work in a really favorable way. Again, I'm limiting this just to movies, this right. analysis, but, and who knows, maybe Disney will do like a tiered kind of service the way a lot of the TV streaming services mm -hmm. work with the bundles. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's quite possible too. All right, well, let's move on to our last uh, couple of topics. We'll just discuss each of these briefly. Um, first of all, this Amazon announcement that it's looking for another North American headquarters that's basically going to be equal to its current Seattle base. Um, and it's North America rather than the U.S., so it could be Canada, could theoretically be Mexico. Um, but, you know, certainly the U.S., by far the biggest market and, and most likely candidate in many ways. Um, but it's basically opened up an RFP, this very unusual process where it said, hey, we're making a request for proposals. Cities can submit you know, specific sites, tell us you know, how you meet these various criteria. And by the way, we're gonna, just, we're gonna uh, make the deadline in the middle of next month um, and then make a decision in 2018 and then have this project that's gonna roll out over you know, 20 years or something crazy. Um, and it's a very unusual sort of process, I think driven by two things. I think PR is one of them, you know, trying to create jobs in new markets um, and, uh, you know, get a lot of positive sort of press for this. I think the other one is it's a practical consideration. Seattle is, you know, one of the sort of 20 highest cost places to do business in the United States. They're right in the same neck of the woods as Microsoft, which obviously competes for a lot of the same engineers, especially around areas like cloud. 
Um, and so it's a high cost, uh, highly competitive market to be in. And they could be somewhere where they have much lower costs, both because there are lower cost uh, parts of the United States in general, but also because they'll get massive tax breaks for, for, uh, from many places where they'll uh, consider basing themselves. Uh, and then also potentially places where there's far less competition for computer science graduates and so on, where you know they can potentially hire a lot more cheaply and easily um, without having the sort of competitiveness that they might have in Seattle itself. So really interesting kind of announcement here. Aaron, what was your reaction to that? Yeah, I was really surprised by it too. And I mean, I'll get a, I, like not even touching the management implications of having two headquarters. Um, because the truth is, I guess, with Amazon, there are enough business units, I'm sure, within Amazon that they can divvy it up and sort that out. I, I think what's more interesting is where they end up choosing, what the criteria will be for choosing the city that they do. I, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, for example, do they want to get far from Seattle for the geographic extension and the benefits that come from sort of being spread out within the United States, or would they rather be relatively close? Um, I'm interested in that because Utah and, you know, the Salt Lake and uh, metropolitan area has been growing really rapidly lately. And a lot of tech companies have started, you know, have been building offices here for the last 10 years. And I don't know. So that'll be one of the things is geographic distance. Like, are they targeting to be far apart? Is that what they prefer? Or would they rather be close? I think another thing that's interesting, obviously incentives will be a huge thing, like tax incentives and other incentives that that the city and county and state would provide. Um, yep. That's not a lot of time for a city to put together a well-thought-out package of incentives right. that they'd offer. Yeah. And I think that there are probably going to be some cities that are going to put together proposals that they might later regret if they were chosen mm -hmm. because sure. of the short yeah. time frame. Yeah. I think lifestyle would be one thing. You know, Jeff Bezos loves Seattle and the lifestyle that it provides to his employees as part of the culture there. I think lifestyle is going to weigh really heavily in their decision. They're going to be thinking about, okay, what's the city where our employees actually want to live and what amenities are there, what culture is there and so forth. Um, yeah. So I guess those are the things I just, it'd be, you know, it's interesting because, because Amazon didn't really, at least from the stuff I read, didn't really lay out exactly what it's looking for in a lot of detail. But I have to think that they have priorities internally that they haven't the, talked about. Yeah, they do. And if you look at the actual RFP document, which anybody can go and look up, um, there's quite a lot of detail there, actually, in terms oh, okay. of, you know, needs to have an airport, needs to have highways very close by, needs to have public sure. transportation infrastructure. And actually, it's not so much about saying, come and build in our city. It's here's the site, basically. So, uh, yeah. you know, a municipality or a state has to say, kind of, here is the specific site that we have in mind for you. You know, here's how much you'd have to pay to buy it or whatever. Um, you know, and it can either be an existing office building that with room for expansion. It can be, uh, you know, a sort of pad ready, um, you know, empty lot right now or some mixture of the two. So it's really interesting sort of details in there. But uh, but yeah, it's really not a lot of time for these uh, municipalities or states to turn this stuff around either. So yeah, really fascinating process. It very, very much reminds me of what Google did with Google Fiber a few years back, where they basically said, hey, we've got this great new thing. Who wants it? And what are you willing to do for us to get it, basically? And so kind of forcing cities to kind of uh, provide lots of breaks and incentives and so on to try to get that business. Yeah. Where you live specifically, and I'm not revealing too yeah. much private information. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the fastest <laughs> growing areas in the in the country yeah. right now. Yeah, no, and absolutely. And I, I, I wonder if you're going to be looking out your window over and seeing the new Amazon <laughs> headquarters. <laughs> I could yeah, see this certainly, happening. Yeah. I really could. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's funny because I've seen a lot of the coverage is really focused on larger cities, um, you know, around the country, sort of the big established tech hubs, sort of Austin and various other places. Chicago has been mentioned. Yeah. And it's entirely possible, you know, Amazon will end up in one of those big cities because you've got a lot more of the infrastructure they're looking for versus here in Utah where we are. Um, but yeah, where I am, Adobe's got a huge presence very close to where I am right now. You know, Microsoft, Oracle, uh, the IM Flash uh, business that makes uh, flash memory that right across the street from me here. And you've got a bunch of other tech companies around here. You've got BYU and the U of U, uh, both of which have really strong computer science programs. You know, they've got a, a big airport hub for uh, Delta here as well. Yeah. You've got, you know, from a lifestyle perspective, you've got skiing in the winter. You've got lots of outdoor stuff in the summer. You know, it does check a lot of the boxes. I think, you know, Utah and Salt Lake City would be the metro area that they'd be focusing on. Um, you know, may be off most people's lists, but it certainly is an interesting candidate. And Lieutenant Governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, was tweeting about it yesterday, saying that we're definitely on this and, and we're going to work for it. And I'm asking uh, Alexa to help me to put together my proposal. And so, um, you <laughs> yeah. know, they're clearly going to be trying to bid for this business, along with many other municipalities and states around the country. Yeah. So, Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, give it a look. <laughs> there we go. Um, interestingly, Amazon recently put its first or announced its first distribution center here in Utah quite recently as well. So at least it's just gone through the process of yeah. evaluating and, and deciding to put some kind of presence here in Utah. Um, let's move on to our last topic. We won't spend long talking about this, but uh, the Equifax hack. This was uh, announced by Equifax last night. Lots and lots of vagueness about this and lots of related fallout from it. But at, at root, at some number of accounts or, or user details on Equifax, which is a sort of credit score monitoring service, among other things, uh, were exposed to hackers. Uh, there are a couple of different numbers floating around. 200,000 uh, people's details are definitely exposed. 143 million may have been exposed. And a lot of people are focused on that 143 million number. That's sort of a potential number rather than an actual number. Um, but a lot of the stuff that's come out in the last day or so has been about the response uh, Equifax is basically offering to let you know whether you've been affected or not, but basically by signing you up for Equifax services. There's a lot of stories going around saying if you go through that process, you basically um, forfeit your right to taking legal action against Equifax and force yourself into arbitration. Um, the technology around uh, the way that that site's been managed is terrible. Um, it's emerged that three executives sold $1.8 million worth of shares uh, in the days immediately after the hack was discovered, although they're claiming they didn't know about it at the time. Uh, so lots of other fallout about this. But Aaron, you had kind of a tech angle that you wanted to talk about here. So I'll let you go first on this one. Yeah, and it's just that you can't be dealing in consumer information anymore and be sloppy about tech. That's all there is to it. I mean, and this is true for retailers. This is true for anybody that's managing consumer information that's important to be kept private. You cannot be sloppy about tech. You have to be great at it. And it's crazy to me that uh, that, a, that a credit reporting bureau could be so bad at it. Um, and I hope that the other, you know, reporting agencies that, you know, weren't affected by this hack are taking this seriously and reevaluating what they do. Um, because this is shameful, and it's and it's just dumb that it was that it even happened, and it shows the incompetence of Equifax that that this wasn't just sort of like really bad luck. This was clearly mismanagement. I think you can assume, I think that's a clear message out of how sort of tech sloppy their response has been, and so I just don't think you you have to be great at this because um, 
because consumer privacy is still such a big deal. It's the stream that Google is swimming up all the time, upstream against all the time. This is, you, you can't, you, you can't ignore the importance of protecting this information with the absolute highest standard of technical technical ability that you can have. And and yeah. this just is the th this is potentially the biggest, or I should say, the most impact potentially most impactful consumer information. Uh, hack that's that's probably ever happened yeah and and the big irony is that the vast majority of people never deliberately had any kind of relationship with equifax yeah exactly I mean, it's not like being a google customer you know knowing the risks knowing the sort of downsides of sharing all your data with a company like google or facebook or whatever or you know shopping at target and having your credit card breached you know this is not a deliberate decision that most people have made to have their information stored by equifax it largely does it on behalf of third parties Yes, you may have said, you know, what's my credit score at some point in the past. But again, you don't have much choice about that. There's only sort of a handful of companies that maintain those things. And if you want to know what it says, you have to go to them. Um, but, you know, this is not a company that has, you know, consumer customers for the most part and therefore has necessarily taken responsibility to communicate clearly about what information they're gathering, how they deal with it and so on. Uh, you know, the vast majority of us are incidentally Equifax customers, if that's the word. Some people have suggested we're the Equifax product. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it highlights a lot of the broader risks around all the data collection and so on that's going on. But it sort of exacerbates that by the fact that most of us have never deliberately decided to make that trade off with Equifax in the first place. Yeah, I you know if we weren't such a tumultuous political climate right now, I I think you could expect the Equifax executives to be hauled in front of you know a Senate committee or a House committee in short order. There. Yeah bigger fish to fry right now so i'm not sure how soon that'll mm -hmm. happen but it's it's that yeah. big of a deal yeah certainly some some legislators and, and more local um like uh, attorney generals and so on starting to talk about taking some kind of action so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out as well all right well we'll wrap up the episode there thanks very much for listening everybody again i'll remind you about the question of the week episode from earlier in the week the interview with mark bergen about alphabet and google had some great insights into both the core Google business and some of the other bets there as well and the overall structure and how that's working out for the company. Uh, so go live that, give that a listen if you haven't heard that episode yet. Uh, we'll have, as usual, uh, links in the show notes to some of the stories that we've been talking about, both uh, what I've written about them on my Tech Narratives site for subscribers, but also the original sources of those stories if you want to go and read about those uh, for free as well. So we'll have those in the show notes as usual. Uh, next week, I mentioned this on the Question of the Week episode, next week is Apple's big event on Tuesday. Our plan is to record a sort of deep dive Question of the Week episode focusing on the announcements from that event uh, sometime early next week. And then we'll be back with another News Roundup episode later in the week as well. So thanks very much again for listening. Have a great weekend and we'll be back with you next week. Bye-bye.